Good evening, and welcome to the Film Club Podcast. See, we finally remembered to do you it. finally did it <sighs> at the beginning of one of these Hitchcock episodes. Finally. Took I... like three weeks. Three tries. got around to it. Yes. On the most important episode. One of the strongest episodes. The episode I've been waiting my whole life to record. R- really? Oh, for like the past two, three years. Since we started the podcast? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because this is your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. This is. This is my favorite Hitchcock movie, and it's also in my top ten films of all time. Yeah, and I mean, we've brought this movie up a bunch of times when we've talked about, like, other movies of the genre before. I think it's very foundational for a lot of, like, the slasher movies we talk about. It's a film that's studied. Very studied. Very studied. This is probably Hitchcock's most popular film. Yes. I mean, I don't I don't think there's that many other Hitchcock... There's probably Hitchcock movies that are maybe more iconic. But this is the most successful Hitchcock film. Yes. Uh, so what movie are we talking about? We're talking about 1960s Psycho. Yes, we are talking about Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Janet Leigh and Anthony Perkins. It is the story of the overworked Marion Crane, who is fed up with her way of life, running around with her boyfriend Sam Loomis and decides to steal $40,000 from a very drunk Texas businessman. I'm assuming oil tycoon. I'm assuming with a hat like that and drives off to rendezvous with her love and start a new life together. But on the way she is, well, she stops off at the Bates Motel. Which you never do. And uh, comedy ensues. Yeah... But yeah, this is a this is a pretty foundational horror movie. This is one of, if not the earliest example of a slasher movie. Yes. Uh, which I'm, I want to talk about that a little later. I figured. And it's you know as we were saying, Hitchcock's most popular film. It's it's definitely the biggest one. I think this is the Hitchcock movie most people have seen before. Um, I think Rear Window might be the only one, or North by Northwest, are the only ones that get referenced more than Psycho. Mm-hmm. And even then, that's like a small margin. Yeah. But, but you know. the amounts of people that were coming out to see this film were just astronomical. And, you know, we would get this later on with Jaws and the whole, you know, summer blockbuster tradition that started and is still going till this day. We yeah. just well, don't wait around the block anymore. Like, you know. Yeah, the past. Well, yeah, the summer blockbuster thing that that definitely got really defined in the seventies in the nineteen seventies with like Star Wars and Jaws and all those movies. This is because this was like a big movie that surprised everybody. Surprised everybody, but it was also the genius of Hitchcock's marketing, where it was you know we will not let you into the movie after the showtime has begun. You have to wait in line until the next showing, and people were showing up in hordes and standing there in line and just waiting, and they had people that would run out of the theater, and people were like, oh man, I've been waiting here for an hour, now I really need to get into the theater and see what's happening. I think that's the the thing about the movie that people tend to forget, is why it was so popular. It's because Hitchcock understood the hype machine mm-hmm. before the hype machine even existed, and yeah. he knew, oh, I'm going to send this thing to every theater. I'm going to make it these very weird rules that just don't happen in any other movie. And I'm going to, you know, do these smart little um, advertisements. He's like, 
Oh, do you want to see the most disturbing, dangerous film? So dangerous, only Sir Alfred Hitchcock was able to make it under the production code? Like, stuff like that, where you're like, I, he's almost challenging you, being like, are you man enough to go see see this movie? And that was like half the marketing of it. Or, you know, if you're man enough, we also have some armed guards so you could feel a little bit more comfortable seeing this film. And it's like, my <laughs> God, you have armed security let's, there. Let's what is going to happen? His armed guards were probably like 17-year-olds. He, he paid to dress up as security guards at uh, the premiere. But, so, it we're talking about Psycho. Yes, we are. Um, when was the, the first time you saw the movie? Oh, I have no idea. Th that's how long this movie's been a part of my life. It's something that's, you know, been watched over and over again. And I've, you know, seen interviews with people where they talked about, oh, Psycho was one that I appreciated later in life because I understood it. It's got the complexities of, you know, oh, this woman is trying to help her fiancé slash boyfriend it's it, they're not like engaged or anything and it's one of those things where like the sam loomis character the boyfriend he's one of the weaker characters in the movie yeah also you can tell like half the adr he is doing is like gothel <laughs> some of the adr in in this movie is a uh, questionable at best i i never noticed i mean yeah. mostly because he's not on my radar of, you know, ooh, this mm. is a big character. Like, he has importance to the story. Mm. Well, he's he's one of the more important characters in the second half, but even in the second half, where he's, oh, he's the only character from the first half of the movie that keeps showing up that's not named Norman Bates. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you're still, like, the third person I care about in this movie. Yeah, because he's one of the first characters we see when the film begins, and it's him and Marion's sister Lila that take over the second half. But Lila's really the one that's taking charge and taking the lead. And we're going to go to the motel. We're going to do this, this, and that. And Sam's kind of like, all right. Yeah, well, okay. I want to talk about Lila real quick. Because Lila's played by Vera, Vera Miles. Vera Miles. Who, yeah. This was her, part of her contract to Hitchcock. This was her third film that she needed to complete. And it was like, yo, you kind of, you know change the book a little bit on vertigo so i'm gonna put you into psycho yeah and it's funny because everyone remembers marion crane from this movie everyone remembers mm. janet lee but vera miles i think does just as good a job and carries a lot like the whole back half of the film and i think i read somewhere that I think she took issue with that when hitchcock was like yo this is gonna be the third movie that you do for me and it was like you want me to play the younger sister and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, yeah, you know, Marion gets bopped off 30 minutes into the movie. You're holding the rest of the film. And it's like... Well, it's probably also Vera Miles was like, you mean I can just get paid full price for 30 minutes of screen time? That was probably a lot more like... Could have, and then he was like, yo, you had a baby though. So I'm yeah. so mad about that. Of course he was. But... Um, cause I saw Vera Miles in The Searcher, cause I watched like The Searchers this week mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, Vera Miles is in this movie. Oh, badass. And seeing her in this, I'm like, oh no, she was like a really good actress yeah. and I don't think she gets a lot of credit for the role in the movie mm -hmm. cause Janet Lee just casts such a long shadow. Oh yeah. Cause Janet Lee in this movie is, is phenomenal. Yes. And it's weird cause this is 1960. Yeah. So 
59 at the time that it's being filmed. Yeah, and it's a thing where, you know, acting at this point, we are just getting out of the whole, well, can't she? You know, we're, we're just leaving <laughs> bad acting of American, like, cinema. Yeah. Like, you can go, go back, watch, like, 50s movies, 40s movies, 30 movies. America, we did not discover naturalistic acting until Brando. But in this movie... I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. <laughs> that's a pretty good Brando. But the thing is, is, like, in here, oh, like, Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins are giving pretty naturalistic performances. Oh, yeah. Vera Miles is like, oh, no, you're, like, doing a pretty good, like, like performance here. Mm -hmm. And then, then you have, like, you know, the guy playing Sam Lewis. I, I'm going to forget his name throughout this entire review. Yeah, because I don't think I've seen another movie with him before. Uh, John Gavin. Yeah, I, I think John Gavin's one of those one of those actors who just worked in tv and stuff for his entire career because a lot of the people in this movie are like tv actors and stuff like that like i think janet lee and anthony perkins were kind of the biggest names here because yeah. anthony perkins was in the trial with orson welles i think a couple years before this and he was a rising star as the end of the boy, boy next door mm -hmm. leading man kind of thing but with this like you get a lot of more naturalistic performances and i think that's something you don't see in a lot of Hitchcock movies because he kind of stopped making movies when that became a thing. Well, that and also Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee really played well off each other. Mm. And it's, you know, it, it kind of showed that they had a strong friendship while making the movie. So that kind of transferred over to their characters where it just felt very natural even for being, I'm just staying here the night, but, you know, will you join me for dinner and just having, you know, a pleasant conversation that kind of takes a weird spin. I okay, no. I'm going to I'm going to answer no to that. There is no point in this I thought Norman Bates and Marion Crane were acting friendly to each other. I felt incredibly uncomfortable the entire time the two of them were talking to each other. Well, I think you'd feel a little bit different if you read the book because I know you asked me if I read the new B or sorry if I watched the new BFI's number one movie yeah Jean Delmon I, I I actually finished watching it the other day uh it, it's a masterpiece it's boring as hell but it's a masterpiece yeah so I had every intention of watching the film and then I was like oh you know I gotta get ready for this episode and I thought you know what I've got Psycho the book I've been meaning to read it so I read Psycho the book. Oh, did you finish it? I finished oh, it. Oh, shit. It's not a long book. Uh, it's about 17 chapters. Mm -hmm. So I read it, and uh, yeah, that interaction that happens in the book, a lot more scarier than this interaction that we get in the film. I have heard the book is a lot more... Um... A lot more salacious, a lot more disturbing. It's a lot darker yeah it's a lot darker because i think when the producers and you know paramount heard that hitchcock was gonna make psycho they assumed he was going to make the a very faithful book adaptation mm -hmm. and that would have been like an x-rated gore fest yeah and the writer who wrote the screenplay for this movie joseph stefano mm -hmm. he read the book and was just like you know i don't like norman bates and, I mean, you're not supposed to like the killer, but it's like, why not change that character up so he's likable, and it really makes you think, well, he can't be doing all this harm to all these people. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be Mother that's the one that's crazy and going after them, and I was like, 
Yeah, you know, I've grown up with Anthony Perkins being my Norman Bates, and then reading who Norman Bates is in the book, and I'm like, oh yeah, you are just... He's supposed to look like, what, George Costanza from Seinfeld? Um, like like really fat, kind of kind of yeah, short, balding, balding forty year old man who is very nervous around women. The the exact stereotype of a serial killer who says bitch a lot. That I was very surprised. Bitch is used a lot in that book. Oh, and I was oh, just like, oh, bless these virgin ears. Oh. I know I couldn't believe it. I'm like, my god, if I had pearls, I'd be clutching them right now. But I was just like, yeah, just seeing. The, the two different characters of Norman Bates, and I'm like, I think, you know, thank you, Joseph Stefano, because this Norman Bates works a lot better. So unsuspecting, charming, you would never think, you know, he'd harm a fly. Ah, uh, God. Oh, uh, I think, I think that quote gave me cancer. Uh, so, well, the thing is, is Anthony Perkins' performance in the movie is very, very good. Yeah. And... Yeah, he doesn't feel like a stereotypical, like, you know, villain role, especially for, like, 1960. Because I think around this time, we're still, you know, like, maybe not Boris Karloff and... And Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi, but we're we're still in, like, oh, you know, haunted houses and, you know, mustache-twirling villains. We're, we're getting, like, Vincent, Vincent Price era. Yeah, and this is moving into, like, the true crime era where... This novel is loosely based on Ed Gein, who was a serial killer in Wisconsin. Yeah. And apparently uh, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, lived not too far away from Ed Gein. Oh, yeah, because I think they both were living in, like, rural Wisconsin. Yeah, so it was a thing where he was inspired by what was happening in his surroundings. And so was the nation, because it was just this thing where he was killing just about all the female neighbors. And he had, like, this... Uh, kind of like Norman, this like trophy room to his mother. Oh, so it was this thing where um, the country was intrigued by this story. No, well, here's the thing about Ed Gein because I know a lot about it because I'm I'm a weird person. He only ever killed two people, but what he did do was he was a grave robber, and that's the nasty thing about the guy. Because he, I think he only killed like two women, and he was like super easy to find. Mm-hmm. But he robbed, I think, like thirty or forty graves, something like that, and and he would, he made some uh, interesting furniture and knickknacks. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen the nipple belt? No, but I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The, uh, oddly enough, mm-hmm. another movie kind of based off of Ed Gein. Yeah, you know? so it was interesting to see that you know, like you had said, America was moving from the haunted houses, the Vincent Prices, the mm-hmm. Karloffs version of scary not scary to no it's you know not monsters that are scary it's people that are scary yeah which i'm wondering if that's why hitchcock was drawn to it so much because we talked a lot about you know hitchcock's um hitchcockiness yeah in vertigo and i'm wondering what drew him to psycho because he was coming off of north by northwest Mm -hmm. it was like one of the most expensive productions he ever did. It was this big, you know, adventure romp. And he, mm. at this point, he was known for, you know, suspenseful thriller things. Mm. He never made, like, a straight horror movie. And this is a straight horror movie. And not yeah. only that, it's a straight horror movie that's done to be a low-budget schlock picture. Like, he intentionally went out to make a William Castle-esque B-picture 
And I'm like, what drew him to this material specifically? Not sure, but I know it was the book. I don't remember the gist of it, but I know that he found the book somewhere. He was so intrigued by it that he went and secretly bought the rights to the book for $9,500 in 50s money. Mm. So I don't know what that would equate to I now. I believe and- that be like a hundred grand something like that because i think it's a i think at this point we're a 10 times multiplier okay. for 1960 i don't know why i know that but i think it's a 10 times multiplier okay so he you know was so intrigued by this and was like you know what i can make this and i could make this so well that it scares the crap out of people instead of just the book and his assistant that would work with him in the office he sent her out to buy all the books in the local bookshops to make sure that Nobody knew the ending. He's like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to make sure that, yes, it's based off a book, but you can't skip to the end because there's no book to find. I wonder if that's what it was. I wonder if Hitchcock read the book and thought, oh, this is just a a perfect twist. Mm -hmm. I just want to do the twist. Because it feels like he is setting up a interesting mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Who's the killer? Is it Mother? But we we don't see her. Norman, why is she this crazy? Wh- yeah, why is she like this? Why is Norman so nervous? And, it, you know, if you watch the movie now. And it's and like. You can guess Norman's the fucking killer because, yeah. you know, society. But the thing is, is the ending of the movie when, you know, it's revealed who the killer is. It's mm-hmm. Norman. Sorry to spoil a 62 year old movie. But it's like, oh, that's. That's kind of surprising. Like, you know, watching the movie, you're like, man, this is really set up so that twist should pay off like gangbusters. And then, you know, the psychiatrist comes in and kind of spoils the the movie for you. But whatever, you know. That's like my only gripe with the movie, by the way, is the psychiatrist that explains the entire movie you just saw in explicit detail. Well, that and I know that that was part of the, uh, the censorship where they needed to explain it to mm. the audiences because they didn't want you know audience well what happened you know why is he dressed like that that was like their biggest concern that he was wearing mother's clothing mm-hmm. so that's why they had the psychiatrist explain that he's you know basically living with this dual personality and it's just like bruh i'm is, like he's just this. is this the most explicit display of the hashtag the not gays i don't know you, it's you, just... you know that thing right in movies where they'll give a character like no, I'm wondering I, if I this is like, oh yeah it's it's a weird movie trope they used to do I, I think they still kind of do it but it was a big thing in like the 80s and 90s but I'm wondering if this was the first instance of guys he's not gay I swear even though he's wearing the dress I well, swear we're gonna bring the psychiatrist in to explain it to everybody well that's why they had an issue with um one of the detectives using the word transvestite because mm. they're like oh my god you know what are the audiences gonna think and that's why the psychiatrist has to explain what the difference of things is and it's just like bruh i get it he's got a dual personality where his mother is basically living inside of him and it's this struggle of these two people trying to inhabit one body and it's like is this a disturbed thing or is mother just that strong that part of her is living inside of him because they've got a fucked up relationship yeah and i mean does it go into detail about their background in the book? Uh, a little bit. Uh, it's not as incestuous as it is in Bates Motel, the show. Oh, I watched, I think, the first season of that show, and then I just, I kind of bowed out. 
I've watched the show like two or three times. Oh, really? is it good? Is it good? Good? Or are you just like I, I was? It's easy to put on in the background. No, it's one of those things where it's interesting to see it in a modern setting, even though you have the motel in the house. Mm. So it's interesting to see Norman and Norma in like our time. But they really go on this kind of like they've got the hots for each other and they know it's wrong. But it's it's this weird thing. But it plays out like into the way that Psycho happens. Mm -hmm. So we do get a Marion Crane and a Sam Loomis in the ending. Isn't Marion Crane played by like Rihanna? Uh, Rihanna? Oh god. That was the biggest shock to me because I didn't watch this when it was on TV. I waited until like it was on a streaming service and I'm mm -hmm. like I could binge you know season after season. And I was so shook when Rihanna came out. And I was like, oh my god, it's Rihanna. And I'm like, oh no, they're going to kill Rihanna because she's Marion Crane. And they killed Rihanna. I was like, man. That's, oh, spoilers. I spoilers know. for the Bates Motel TV show. But in the book, they talk a little bit about the this husband that Norma takes on. And, you know, of course, Norman's jealous. And the husband is the reason why the hotel is built. Mm. I don't think they say that in the movie. No, no, they they do in the movie. I think it's one of those things where the sheriff says it when they're doing when Sam and Lila Lila go go to him and they're like, oh, oh, this kid Norman Bates is up there, blah blah blah, and he's explaining it's like, oh yeah, you know, strangest case of murder suicide we ever seen. Yeah, he made her build that hotel and they lived out there and all that stuff. Yeah, because in the show. Uh, they happen across the property and they buy the house, which comes mm -hmm. with the motel. So that's what I was trying to remember if it's said there. But in the book, they talk about how, you know, Norma's very anti-man because her husband leaves her and leaves her with the baby. And that's why she's kind of has this vendetta against Norman because mm -hmm. he's another man and he's just going to hurt her and leave her eventually. So it's this thing where this Joe guy who becomes the next husband you know, just keeps working on her till she finally, I do love you and sure, we'll use my money and we'll build this motel. And Norman's just like, yeah, it's just, you know, me and mom, not, you know, the three of us. And he often kills them. Okay. But in this movie, it's a 20 or no, it's a 10 year gap between the murders of his mother and his stepfather. Yes. And yeah. in the book, it's a 20 year gap. Oh yeah, yeah. Because in because in the in the book he's like forty, right? And yeah. in this he's twenty six or around twenty six. Oh, is that is that like how old Norman Bates is? That's how old Anthony Perkins is. No, like, we just kind of guess. No, that's how old Norman Bates is supposed to be in this movie. Mm, okay. And Marion, um, Janet Lee in an interview said that Marion's supposed to be like in her early thirties, which matches with Marion or Mary Crane in the book, who's supposed to be twenty nine. But Marion the book's more vain mm -hmm. than our Marion. It's this thing where she's engaged to Sam Loomis in the book. They met on a cruise. And it's this thing where, you know, they correspond by letter. And Sam has, you know, the same debts for his father that he has to pay. And Marion's more on the, I'm almost 30. I should be, you know, your bride. Well, you I'm, gotta I'm put a ring on it, honey. I'm, I'm getting a little, little old for this I'm shit. I'm starting to get older, and it's like, you know, in this, in the movie, it's marrying, you know, I just want to be happy. I want to be married to you, and yeah, this is wrong, but I want to be able to help you. Like, that's a that's a big thing about this movie is how they make Marion Crane a such sympathetic character, because mm -hmm. the whole 
because like you know you lay the foundation it's like okay she's this woman who's having this kind of like secret love affair with sam loomis who's like a recent divorcee i think he's a divorcee he's paying his wife or his ex-wife alimony yeah he's paying off the debts that his father's collected Mm. and but um let, let me finish my point Marion Crane is this woman who is on paper not supposed to be a good person. You know, she's stealing money from her boss and she's going to go run away and her and Sam are going to live a life of luxury away from each other because, oh, they deserve it. But Janet Lee plays it so well and it's written so well where you don't feel bad she's taking 40 grand from this kind of drunk, you know, Texas oil man. I don't know what he is, but he's now a Texas oil man. Yeah, I mean, because in the book, they explain Marion's past, and we don't get this in the movie, and I think that's the brilliance and the strength of Janet Lee that, you know, she's just, she radiates good, and you feel like, I understand why she's taking the money. Is it wrong to take this money? Yeah. But from the sleazy guy? Eh, yeah. Eh, t- take the money. I'll give, I'll give you a freebie on that. I think that's the thing. The movie's written so well, and because also you can see Marion Crane is not a um uh, an international thief by any no. stretch of the imagination. See it, she is the most suspicious woman mm-hmm. on the planet, and I'm just throwing it out there. Like the when that cop goes up to her, I'm like, honey, honey, there is no way in hell the way you look, you have not talked your way out of a parking ticket at mm-hmm. least once. All right, Marion. You just gotta flash those eyes at him. I forgot to say, she just burst out into tears and be like, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to be like this. But she Please has... don't call my husband. Oh my God. He doesn't know I'm out. Oh my God. He he beats me. I, I think the cop would have been like, ma'am, it, it, it's, it's okay, ma'am. It's okay, ma'am. Do, do you need an escort to the next town? She's like, no, no, I don't want him to find me. Please. Nah, and she just gotta, off. you know, do the eyes and, you know, like, okay, ma'am, go go ahead and drive through. Get, but... uh, give, give him the big old Marion Crane eyes. Her eyes are so big in this movie. They're beautiful. But uh, in the book, they explain that Marion has been basically the sole provider of her family for like the past seven years. Mm. There was a thing where her father was hit and killed by a car. And then her mom, you know, becomes a widower, obviously. And then her mom becomes ill and then she puts Lila through college. So she kind of forfeits going to college so she can, you know, work for this agency. So she's taking care of the family. She's the, the major breadwinner. And this Texas tycoon who we see, you know, buying his daughter this $40,000 house as a wedding gift yeah, is a, I guess, a continual customer because it's like um, like a property business. Um, I've assumed it was some sort of real estate agency. Yeah. One of those like, um, like, oh, we're a real estate agency that sells like ranches and like big big pieces of property yeah so in the book they explain that he is a continual customer and you know he's a sleaze and he's you know made a pass at her before where he offered her like a hundred dollars to spend the weekend with him in like vegas where he's just like hey you know what you're not busy this weekend you know and she makes a point of you know wow you know he could spend forty thousand on a gift for his daughter but for a hundred bucks he thinks i'm gonna give my body over for a weekend so it's this kind of thing where it's like she doesn't do it maliciously to take the money. It's just this thing where it's like, huh, I could kind of kill two birds with one stone. And then she gets home and it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm really doing this. I'm mm-hmm. I'm packing my bags and I'm taking the money. And it's like, well, he is an asshole, so let's go. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Marion Crane, 
almost seems as surprised as we are that mm-hmm. she's doing this. And it makes it so interesting because I've seen Psycho, I don't know, probably, I don't know, a half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I know the beats. But it's always a thing where, man, she really does die kind of early in this. Man, I'm, I was really invested in her. And then, you know, the shower scene happens. Yeah. And it's like, really, that's it? I felt she was in way more of the movie. You know, and then, you know, the rest of the movie happens. I think that's my my thing with the movie is I've always liked the be- the first half of the movie with Marion Crane yeah. as opposed to the latter half. I feel the latter half has a lot of good moments in it, but I feel the, from Psycho's, like, that opening, you know, mm-hmm. score sequence with, like, Saul Bass doing, doing the intro. The, the, the transition. The transition stuff all the way to the shower sequence. I'm like, oh, no, that's a masterpiece from end to end. Yeah. And then, it, and then you know, it's still a masterpiece for the rest of it, but I'm like, oh, no, now it has, like, some peaks, valleys, things like that. You know, the valleys aren't that low, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but it just makes Marion more heartbreaking because, you know, we open on her and Sam, and this is the brilliance of Hitchcock. Uh, the two of them are in bed, and she's in her white negligees. Mm. And then once she takes the money and she's packing up, she transitions into the black negligees, and it oh, shows. Oh, don't worry, Boo. Us film men have have noticed that for yeah, many years. Yes, I, I'm I'm very sure that you guys have. But just to show this slight change from you know good to bad, mm. and I mean even when she goes to the office, she's wearing you know a nice white shirt, and when she packs up, she's in you know the, the gray little sweater and uh, skirt set. So just to show this transition from good to bad, and then when she decides, you know what. I shouldn't be doing this. I need to return home and return the money. And it's like, you know, she makes the decision. And even after the rain, when Norman tells her, you're only 15 miles away from where Sam is. It's like, she was that close from either going home or going to Sam. Also, I'm going to be real with you. makes me so mad. 15 miles ain't that bad. Like, I probably would have just like, oh, 15 miles? Uh, Never mind, I don't need the room. And then just get back in the car and drive. Well, I mean, yeah, considering, you know, when the rain just completely stops. It's like, oh, you're in the clear. When she's in the car, it's ridiculous how how much water's coming down. It's like, mm. yeah, how is she going to drive when you can barely see, you know, what's in front of you? Which, again, it's another good visual story thing, because she never says, oh, man, this rain's getting bad. I gotta find a place to pull off. Like they do in, like, bad horror movies. It's the cop that sets her on that path of, you know what? You should pull over to a motel if you're that tired. Mm-hmm. And if he hadn't, she probably would have just pushed through... And kept driving to Sam. Or pulled off to the side of the road like she'd been doing up to that point. Yeah, because in the book it explains that, you know, along the way she stops on outskirts of town to eat, to take Mm. a break, to switch up cars. Because she sells her car like three times in the book. Mm, I see. So, but they make a point of, you know, oh yeah, she just takes the first thing and oh... She really, you know, lost in on that, you know, trade-in, but that was kind of weird. Oh, this dame here, huh? She don't, she don't know nothing about no cars and, and, mm. and deal-makings. Yeah. Also, yeah, so the, the dealership, that's where the bad ADR is. That's some of the worst ADR, because you can tell yeah. that mechanic guy is, that is not the guy in the scene doing the voice. Yeah. It is so weird. And, and that was why Hitchcock hated, you know, doing on-location filming, mm-hmm. because... That was his biggest gripe. We got to come back and we have to do all the ADR work. We have to, you know, cut the sound. Because, I mean, we've done that when we've helped, you know, uh, friends make movies or we work on your movies. I'm doing that right now. I've, okay. Uh, Behind the curtain here. So I made a short film in January. 
God, that was, yeah, it was, that was early t- this year, and it yeah. feels like such a long time ago. Exactly. And we did, we shot the movie, it, we went into to post and all that stuff, and it's like, alright, some of the sound we ran out to like, fix, because we shot on location, and we have to do ADR. Those ADR sessions took a lot longer than I thought they would. Oh, but yeah, so I, I sympathize with Hitchcock. Shoot, shoot on the sets if you have the chance. Yeah, and that was one thing where it's like, yeah, I can understand, but it also makes the story feel more real. Just, you know, seeing her cruise into a used car dealership to to ditch the car, get a new car. The locations in the movie are, are good because they feel, I don't know, less composed like most, most Hitchcock mm-hmm. movies. Like, if you watch something like Rear Window... That movie is an entirely composed environment. It's there's no locations in that. It's it's a giant set. And yeah. then you look at like uh, Vertigo. It's like oh, there's like all location stuff, but you can you can tell Hitchcock's like ah, I want to do this as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Like it isn't there a shot in Vertigo where it's like there's one shot of okay, so this is the real location. Then a truck passes by, and he hides a cut in there, and then boom, you're in a set when Vivian Lee or not Vivian Lee, um, Kim, Novak. Kim Novak like walks on screen. Then that's a set. Yeah, and it's like something like that where I'm like, you, why didn't why didn't you just one? Why didn't you just build a whole set? Yeah, but it's it's just a fascinating thing where he hated on location shooting so much, but mm-hmm. he put himself in a situation where he would kind of have to do that. Yeah. You know, because he funded the movie himself, and he purposely funded it as cheaply as possible. I think it was like an $800,000 picture, and that was super low studio budget, even by that day yeah. standard. I, I think his his house was on the line, too, because mm-hmm. it was just this gamble. And he was the one that had the foresight that, you know, this is going to work. I know it's going to work. And, I mean, he made it work. I mean, even bringing on his Alfred Hitchcock Presents team... Mm-hmm. They all came in and they were, you know, grips and camera operators. So that's why this movie kind of feels flawless because these people have been working together for such a long time that it's not like, you know, oh yeah, we're kind of learning and got to teach you and you this, this and that. It's like, nope, we work as a team. We're in, we're out. Well, the other thing is he's using TV, you know, crew or whatever, and they're used to being like, Oh yeah, so I I have to turn around thirty minutes of a, of a TV episode every seven days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck it, we can do it. You know, yeah, show up, do the thing, stand there, do your line. Yeah, we'll we'll just move and move and move. We do the dailies well, at the end of the day. I do have a question for you. So you said you know this this feels like it has like a flawless production, mm-hmm. and that's been my observation with Hitchcock, like the movies we've seen, mm-hmm. is he is a a consummate perfectionist. Yes, like. All, maybe like his movies aren't perfect, but everything in the movie, it's like this is composed exactly how he wants it. And he definitely is a technical master. Yes. Master visual language, master cinematic storytelling, all all the things people have heaped on him forever. But do you think Psycho is a completely flawless picture? Or is is there anything in the movie you could say detracts from it in any way? No, and I that might be me being biased because I love this movie it, so much. It is like what your like fourth or fifth favorite movie of all Somewhere. time. Somewhere I'm I'm thinking maybe we need to do the top ten again. <laughs> I, I'm inspired by BFI, where it's you know maybe we should go back and review our top ten and 
I my top ten changed like three days after we did that episode. By the way. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking today. I was like, you know what? There's some movies in there that I would probably drop and put new movies in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, it feels flawless. Even though I love Marion Crane, and I'm always sad to lose her. I'm always thinking maybe this time she'll get away, but she's not. But no, I think this movie's perfection. I mean, honestly, on any technical level, it is. I think the only thing about the movie that I've ever, ever had any issue with is that psychiatrist ending, just because I feel that that just grinds the movie to a screeching halt, because one, the psychiatrist is talking for like five, ten unbroken minutes. Yeah, and he's he goes kinda, for a while. And, and the actor, like, there's no, like, I'm not talking mean about the actor, because I know this is like the style of acting, but he's like, you know, doing his Columbo, he's like, now look here, darling, like, Norman Bates over here, he's, he's not a transvestite, da, he is, uh, he's touched in the mind, he, he's, blah, and he's doing this kind of, like, I, I don't know, like, this bit of, you know, over-explaining the audience, like if you came in late. Yeah, but I think it works, because it's in the book, but we get it relayed through Sam. Mm. Lila's not there for that meeting with the psychiatrist, so it's Sam relaying what he can from that, you know, I think he spends, like, a couple of days at the institution that Norman's being held in, Mm. and the psychiatrist is, you know, giving him the rundown of what's going on, so it's a lot of Sam, yeah, and he said, you know, he's, you know, struggling with this, this, and that, and blah, 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 so I think it's a stronger impact in this movie to see them sitting in the police station and them getting the rundown from a psychiatrist where it's like, he's crazy, but there's a reason why this craziness is happening. And I, I think that's my issue. Because I know you love um, complete knowledge in yes. your movies. Like, you, you love... Um, when the movie is like is like a completely presented package, right? Yeah, I like when it comes full circle. When it comes full circle and everything is laid out on the table. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and like my thing for the most part is I like like ambiguity mm-hmm. in my films. You know, like the thing's my favorite horror movie and the ending is very ambiguous. Yeah. So in this, I'm like, man, I really wish that psychiatrist thing was cut down to like the bare minimum so there's more ambiguity to yeah it. i agree i think they could have cut down that entire speech by like five minutes mm-hmm. he could have hit the major points i mean it it ends with a killer ending i love the ending of the movie oh the oh the shot with norman in the room uh, oh. against the wall where it's they follow the rule of thirds so you have him off to the side it's beautiful even just to see it as a frame where he's just got that has the blanket draped across him, it, and you have the little window beside him. Like it that's is a beautiful one of the image. most simple, simple images. And I'm like, how the hell is this one of the most interesting shots in the entire movie? And it's Norman Bates sitting against a white fucking wall. Well, it's one of the most interesting shots because it's one of the most interesting scenes because we've just seen Norman this entire time, mm. and we've also heard Mother. But this is the first time where we get the two of them together and just to see the sinisterness that is mother and just seeing him go from sweet norman contorting to mother which also is a cool parallel when um marion is driving in the car and she's feeling the guilt of taking the money and then she starts thinking about well you know i've known her for 10 years she would never do this and this oil baron you know, I can't believe it. She had all that money in front of her and she didn't, you know, bat an eye and she's gone without it. 
as she starts to smile and she's sitting there driving and she's smiling. I, I loved that. And then you have like... Norman in the end where he's sitting there in the jail cell and he just starts to, you know, give that sinister smile to the camera and it's like, wow, we had a, and a then, parallel moment. And then moment. you have the cheesy, like, fade, fade of the, mother. Of the skull mm-hmm. mother and I then goes that. in the Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a little cheese, but it works so well because, like, that, I'm like, any other movie, that would be the cheesiest effect. In this, I am really creeped out by it. Oh, yeah. But speaking of parallel paralleling shots, um, so, in the beginning of the movie, when Marion kind of takes over as our lead, we have this very distinct, like, perfect profile mm-hmm. of Marion. And then, once she arrives to uh, the base motel and Norman says, you know, goodbye, and she leaves, and we pick up, and Norman is now our lead character. They mirror, it's the exact same composition. It's Mm -hmm. the exact same profile. Like they're, they take the same space. And I'm like, Oh, that's fascinating because it's like, Oh, you're, they're passing off the torch by marrying this same shot. And I think that's one of the more interesting things is how, um, Hitchcock is composing these shots and everything in this movie. Each shot has a meaning. Yeah. I mean, even with, um, I believe it's when, Marion is in the offices, I think, or mm. at work, where how it's just composed, you know, the boss and all that stuff, they're on one side of the frame. And then mm-hmm. if you look, there's like this wall or this edge of the corner, and the line from the corner is lined right down the middle of them. Yeah. So she's separated from them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like fascinating little bits of cinematography. Yeah, and I mean, it just shows, you know, Hitchcock really thinks these things out. It's not just, you know... Oh, he focuses on this and he hands off the rest to other people. It's a thing where I didn't even notice it until I was watching The Making of Psycho because I watch this documentary all the time. Yeah. But I had to watch it again for this episode where he starts off the whole mother idea at the very beginning of the movie. Sam, you know, is talking about, oh, you know, sure, I'll come over to your house for dinner. And because Marion's like, you know, I'm tired of doing this. We meet in a hotel room. It's, you know, very cheap. I want to feel... Like, you know, we're in a relationship. And she's like, I'd invite you over with my mother's picture on the mantle. And my sister would be there. And that's when Loomis, you know, he makes the joke of, oh, so we send your sister away and we flip mother's picture around. Then we transition to the office. And Hitchcock's daughter, who plays the other girl that works in the office, mm-hmm. says something about, oh, yeah, you know, um, I had to call my husband. And then my mother called me to see if my husband had called me to check in with me. So this thing of mother is being built up and built up and how all the characters have a mother and our relationships with our mother mm-hmm. until we meet the main mother of this movie. And my God. Did Hitchcock have a good relationship with his parents or his mother? That I'm not sure. I haven't read in too much about his life. Pa- his upbringing. Pa- yeah, his upbringing. But it's just this, you know, kind of thing to show. We all have mothers. We all have, you know, parents sometimes we don't have great mothers no and it's this thing where you know you have uh the other girl that works in the office where her mother's i guess you know super hey you know is your husband calling you are you guys in contact and you have marion where you know her mother's passed but you know she's still very much a part of her life and then you have norman where his life is his mother and it's him rebelling against it but also i need her yeah i i i ask if Hitchcock had, again, like the mother relationship thing, because I'm still trying to wrap my head around why Hitchcock just felt so drawn to this story in this movie. Because I know 
he had one more movie with Paramount, mm-hmm. and he was going to do one with, like, Audrey Hepburn, but she got, like, pregnant or something like that. Yeah. And basically, they he was like, I want to do this movie, and they were like, no, absolutely not. And he was like, I'll put up my own money. And they're like, no, absolutely not. And An he's interesting, like, he did all these steps to try and get this movie made, and I'm like, why did he fight so hard to make Psycho when it seems like so not out of his wheelhouse was he just like wanted to challenge himself did he want to make a a great William Castle production well I think I'm gonna take it back to Hitchcock the movie that's Mm -hmm. you know based off the book the making of Psycho where it was just this thing where yeah he's making these you know big budgeted studio movies and he's you know talking to Alma and he goes I want to go back to our roots where we would you know get this idea and run with it and there's no guarantee it's going to be you know a success but you know it it's calling me and I think that's you know what Psycho was for him that it was a calling it was a challenge and with the studios telling him no it was like you know what you're telling me no I'm going to do it anyways and I'm going to prove you wrong mm-hmm. and which he did, because he knocked it out of the park. I mean, yeah, this movie made $60 million, which now is like half a billion dollars on like a nothing budget. It It's just it's just one of those things where I always find infinitely interesting about Alfred Hitchcock mm-hmm. is why is like how idiosyncratic the guy is. The guy is so particular and picky about weird and random things. And there's all these tropes that continually appear in all of his movies over and over again. And it's yeah. like, it, it's the reason he was like the template for the auteur forever, even still. Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, it's, it's just a fascinating thing. And this is like a fascinating movie to analyze it with. It's probably this and um, Vertigo tell you a lot about the guy. That and there's just so much to chew on both movies that you could just, you know go for days dissecting and trying to figure out the whys and the hows. And can I do this on my own? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I can't, because he's the master of suspense. He knows how to do these things. I mean, d- have you ever seen the remake of this, the 98 one? I refuse. Uh, mm. Yeah, okay, I get it. You mm. know, it's not Hitchcock, so it's hell. So, but the guy who directed it, I think it was uh, Gus Van Sant or Guy Man. I'm not I'm not 100% sure who, who made it, but... Mm. I know the director, the reason he wanted to make it was to kind of, was to test a theory. Mm. And because famously the movie is like a shot for shot remake or incredibly close to a shot for shot remake. And the reason is he wanted to see if he made the movie as close to the original as possible. Mm -hmm. Could he get the same effect? Or was Psycho one of these lightning in in a bottle Mm -hmm. moments that cannot be replicated? Which is, I think is interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there, people say it's like, oh, that's a once-in-a-lifetime movie. You can never make another one. And I'm like, well, what if you made it exactly the same? Made it mm-hmm. one that is, is exactly the same and re-release it and see, could you get close? And he discovered that it that it just didn't work. It's yeah. not, you can't repeat a masterpiece like this and get the same results, even if the original one didn't exist. Because some things are just of the moment. Yeah. And that's why I feel like this movie's perfect, because it happened at the time that it needed to happen with the people that needed to be in it. Mm. And that's why, you know, when we get remakes of movies that we love now, and it's like, cool, exciting, you know, it's going to be back on the big screen, but it doesn't hit the mark because it's special the first time that it's made. It's original. 
And it's like, it should be left alone. Well, yeah, there are, here's the thing. There are remakes that are good. That I'm, okay? Mm-hmm. The John Carpenter's The Thing is a remake of A Thing from Another World. That mm-hmm. is, it's a remake. It's one of those things where the remake culture that we got into in the post-2000s mm-hmm. made it so we got remakes of very shitty slasher movies, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, well, you know, you're not really drawn from, like, great stock, and you are worse quality even than Friday the 13th, okay? Okay, The Mummy. Oh, The Mummy's a great remake. Yeah. You know, uh, I would say Frankenstein, you know, is a great remake. The the Boris Karloff one is a remake of yeah, the so Thomas Edison the one. The Edison one. This one yeah. and that one. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, fuck, there's, like, would you call Belagosi's Dracula a great remake of Nosferatu? Uh, granted, you're starting to get to weird levels of remakes because they're just based on the same material. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Nosferatu has Count Orlok, and we've got Count Dracula, so they're these very two different... Oh, dude, Count Orlok was Count Dracula on the first release, and then they got sued into oblivion and they changed the name. That, yeah, because I, I mean... The production history of Nosferatu is one of the most interesting things on the planet. Do you know um, Aleister Crowley was a producer on that movie? I did not. Do you know who Aleister Crowley is? I do not. Oh, he was a very famous turn-of-the-century occultist that people speculate did real human sacrifices and one of the most evil people on the planet. Also, secret Nazis in Nosferatu. Well, secret Nazis. my main argument was going to be Count Orlok, ew. Count Dracula, cute. Ooh. That Bela Lugosi. For God's sakes, the guy in the movie is old <laughs> enough to be your father. Still cute. He's a good-looking guy. Jesus. But, you know, it, it's just an interesting thing where why is this movie so singular? Why is it that at the time this came out, it did so well? I mean, there is the thing where the production code was, like, shifting a little mm-hmm. bit. We weren't at Bonnie and Clyde yet, but we were definitely moving away from, you know, singing in the rain. Yeah, and I mean, this movie was, you know, a, a feat for first. Because, I mean, we have... Janet Lee in negligees in this movie mm. where, you know, at, you know, at that time would be, what do you mean? You know, you, you're seeing a woman in her bra? Like, you know, no, we, we can't let that happen. And then, you know, having a toilet in a scene and then seeing a toilet being flushed. I always hear people being like, it's the first American movie to flush a toilet live on screen. And I'm like, that is, that's cool. Like, that's neat. I'm, I don't know why that barrier had to be broken down, but yeah, sure, let's go. Do you know how that happened in the movie? I I know that Joseph Stefano wanted to do it because he was annoyed that, like, we never saw a toilet. Like, it was just a weird He wasn't tip. annoyed. It was just the thing where I was like, huh, you know what? I've never seen that happen in a movie. And Hitchcock's like, we'll do it. And he's just like, really? He's like, yeah, we'll do it. Oh. I mean, it goes with how we find the evidence that Marion had stopped at the Bates Motel. Yeah. When they find, you know, a figure of, you know, what she was doing to, you know, deduct what she had spent from the money that she had taken, and she flushes the evidence away, but one piece falls. Compared to in the book, uh, how we know that Marion was there at the motel was when she's killed, one of her earrings comes off, and they find it in the shower stall. Mm. So that's how they're able to, you know figure out Marion had been here and there's blood on the earring, so something happened to Marion. Neat. Yes. 
But also uh, the shower sequence. Do you, can we? You want to just talk about that? We're an hour in, so we've already weeded out the people who thought we weren't going to talk about it. Yeah, we got to talk about the shower sequence because like, I mean the, the most famous sequence in uh, horror history. Uh, the the f- most, filmmaking. Yeah, you know, uh, something that's been studied, overanalyzed thousands of times. People figuring out. Why is this so good? Is this perfect montage? That is shower scene was actually filmed on my birthday. Oh yeah, you've told me about this. Yeah. And like, what is the end of the movie technically is on your birthday too? It's technically on my birthday. Uh, I had to do some research because the movie talks about this being a week. Mm. And I was even like, well, that's not right. Because the film starts on December the 11th. And then we see it at the very end. So they think that production screwed up and they didn't change the calendar so the movie should have ended on the 20th but i'm like my number's still on there i'm good and the shower scene one of the most iconic scenes in film history was filmed on my birthday so i'm good but yeah it was a thing where a lot went into this and there's also some controversy and rumors about this Mm -hmm. because saul saul bass who you know helped with um, the transitions and you know some of the well he did the opening like title sequences that's mm-hmm. what that's what he did was he did like animations title sequences he did the opening animations for it's a mad 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 world no uh, north by northwest See, that was his main gig but apparently he was spreading a rumor that he was the one to direct the shower scene he, that is incorrect he did the storyboards exactly and when i was watching the documentary last night janet lee and one of I don't know if he's a cinematographer. He's, you know, someone that worked... He, he was a camera op or a camera yeah, assistant. He, he was someone something. that worked, you know, really close with Hitchcock and the making of this movie. And they both were like, he might have been in the room, but Hitchcock directed everything in this film. So they were like, you know, yeah, this is, you know, decades later and we're still, you know, yeah, this was Hitchcock. This was not you. And I was just kind of like, bro, why would you even try to attempt... Oh yeah, I'm the one that you know directed one of the biggest scenes of all time. Well, well, I mean, you you know why? Because that probably got him so much work afterwards, and this was. <sighs> but then you know you get that internet pre pre internet pre Twitter. Sometimes you can say, and people are like, "Well, he was on the film. He is a visual guy. He did do the storyboards." And then eh, you have sure we'll let you one do of the stars movie. of the film be like, you know, sit down, hold your horses. You did not. Yeah, forty <laughs> years later. No, I'm sure even at the time they were probably like. Whoa, well, well whoa, whoa. again, Boot, to do that, you as a, a big wig studio executive, let me get your big wig for this, you would have to then be like, Sal Bass, you say you direct it? Well, I'm going to get Janet Lee here. I'm going to go in my car, drive down to Beverly Hills, knock on the door, Tony Curtis is going to answer and be like, what do you want to talk to my wife for? What are you doing here? And I'm going to have to explain to him, I need to confirm a story about Sal Bass, and hope that Tony Curtis doesn't slap me around, thinking that that's some sort of euphemism or innuendo. There's a lot of steps to get here. But if you gotta prove it... I mean, if you have to prove it. You're gonna prove it, and I mean... You know, yeah, there was... I I also like how in our fantasy world, Tony Curtis is like a guy who beat the shit out of anybody for talking to his wife. That's your fantasy world. I don't imagine that. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know why. For some reason, I imagine Tony Curtis is basically like Henry Hill from Goodfellas. Uh, Henry Hill was cute. You like Ray Liotta. I I do. Uh, But, um... What the fuck were we talking about? We're talking about the iconicness of the shower scene. I mean, let alone the technology that was created to create this scene. Um, You know, building the, like, the the shower head around the camera. 
so that you could get these views and, you know, the camera's not going to get wet. What? Was that, like, new technology? Because it was, like, um, a camera, like, enclosure, right? So yeah. it wouldn't get the camera wet. Like, that's all it was. Was th- that a new piece of tech? Or I feel like that's something that would have been for, like, documentary use. I'm not sure. I thought that was something new for the film. Just to, you know, give the illusion of, you know, well, yeah, we're people. We shower. You know? And it's like, yeah, this is our view, our vantage point of being in the shower. Mm-hmm. And just that fear of, you know, someone entering and attacking you when you're in your most vulnerable state which is terrifying i mean a shampoo bottle is not going to protect you in the shower somebody somebody gets pounces you i mean i know when i shampoo my hair or i wash my face i am trying so hard to uncover my face because you know that's when they're gonna get you that that's when the spooky stunt person is gonna come out and get you with the with the butcher knife and whatnot exactly that's horrifying i mean yeah it is but, you know, I don't think, you know, Mama Bates is coming after you. You never know. She may I, be all around. I, I do know. I Do I'm, you? Yes, I'm very positive. Are that you sure? Anthony Perkins in a dress is not coming after you, Boo. All right? I mean, he did some damage. He was quick. Because, I mean, he's there in his suit, and then all of a sudden, he's dressed up as Mama Bates, and he's, you know, gutting you. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, but the shower sequence. Yes. Um, this sequence, like, it's fascinating because it is, it is like something this study in film school is like. So this is like perfect montage. Mm-hmm. You know, you never see the knife go in. You never see really anything, but your mind puts together so much stuff into it that when the sensors were looking at it, they had to go frame by frame to check that there wasn't any nudity because so many of them were just like. There's tits in this. And Hitchcock's like, there's not there's not a single nipple in the entire film? That's what we see in Hitchcock where, you know, they're like, oh yeah, you know, this is exposed, that's exposed. And he's like, watch it again. And they watch it again and it's like, he's like, you're the sick one. You're the one imagining things that aren't there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I may be trying to give you, you know, that idea of, you know, putting, you know, these pieces together to create the full picture, but I'm not showing you that. I mean, what was there was Marion Crane breathing. Which, yeah. yeah, you do see her her take, you know, like one final breath. You you know that everyone thought that in the movie you can see Marion Crane blink. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, you, she doesn't blink in the movie. What it was was um, his wife Alma always, like, noticed that she was, like, still breathing. Because mm-hmm. um, Janet Lee was trying so hard not to close her eyes. Yeah. And I'm like, I can imagine Hitchcock being like, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink, mm-hmm. as he's pulling the camera back. Yeah. And I'm like, bro, when, when are you going to cut? Like, this, man, this this is torturous. I don't want to blink. I mean, even Alma had to step in and, you know, kind of calm Janet Lee because when she's, you know, hanging out of the tub and you have that scene where they're pulling back, I guess you could see a vein in her neck just throbbing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, that shows that Janet Lee was really, you know, screaming and you know being terrified in the scene that her body was like you know like oh my god i just went through well, being attacked well that vein is probably her being like don't blink don't blink don't blink that don't blink. too you know how you know the guaranteed way to make sure you blink is just keep telling yourself i'm not gonna blink i'm not gonna close my eyes i'm not gonna blink mm-hmm. i'm not gonna blink and i see you you're blinking a lot yeah try not to blink that that's probably what happened with this that's probably why she was so like 
weird because I can because watching that as the camera's moving back and we're at yeah, that shot of the eye and it has that you know dissolve into the drain and it's like mm-hmm. oh I love that shot and it's like you can see her body is so like tensed up and it looks like her and it looks like you know oh a death twitch or whatever but probably what it is Marion Crane or Janet Lee I'm gonna mm-hmm. keep changing the names is trying so hard to just act dead that it's like almost psyching her out but it works so well in this yeah because i mean you see her throat move and i was even like oh she moved but then i was kind of like trying to rationalize well you're dead and i had read something recently on um on buzzfeed about like people that work with dead bodies the peak of information of course better than better than the encyclopedia britannica is buzzfeed exactly but a lot of people that, you know, work, like, in coroner offices talk about um, how the body expels all the oxygen in itself. Yeah. So, you know, even after hours or whatever, the body's still trying to move all that air out. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was kind of like, you know, I could rationalize, you know, maybe that breath that we see is just a little bit of air. Just- it, it's, you know... The body's settling. Yeah, it's the body it's settling. It's like an old house, you know. Yeah, and I mean, it was interesting because they talked about they wanted to give um, Janet Lee contacts to make her eyes look like she had passed. And mm. it was a thing where contacts were not great in it that time. It was 1960. They were made of glass. Yeah, so it was a thing where after the movie came out and, you know, people were talking about the scene, I guess a bunch of ophthalmologists were writing into Hitchcock and they're like, hey, you know, a solution that you, you could do for this effect is um, basically using that eye drop solution that dilates the eyes. Mm-hmm. So I guess Hitch took that, and after this movie, he used that anytime he had, like, a close-up death in his uh, oh, oncoming movies. That's that's cool. And I'm like, that is pretty cool. Because, I mean, yeah, that's really hard to get someone to lay there and just don't breathe and don't blink. Yeah, and... And just to have that glazed look in your eyes, because your irises. Or your um your pupils, pupils. dilate when you pass. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, it really makes it, you know, that much more believable. Oh, yeah. And the thing is with this, you know, we're, we talk a lot about, you know, oh, Janet Lee, She's a great actress by lying there and not moving. But the the other part of it is, you know, it's, it's a thing where it's barely performance. You know, like, because in the sequence, it's like, all right, Janet, uh... Stuntman's gonna come in, sometimes it's gonna be Alfred, and we're just gonna, like, wave a knife at you, scream and freak out. But it's cut together so quickly, and it's mm-hmm. com- and each cut is so composed, and each shot is so composed, that it builds together into this violent, vicious killing. And it's like, there's no blood, there, really? Yeah, I mean, it's not like slasher movies now, where it's just, you know... It's a gore-fest. It's gore-tastic, but, I mean, you know, that's why I was listening into the, the making of it, and how... You know, they would do some of the the scenes, you know, for the, the shower scene where they would do a take where, like, they'd press, like, the knife onto, like, her stomach. Mm-hmm. And then they'd pull it back slowly and then they would just, like, speed it up so it looks like she's getting, you know, stabbed with the knife. But you never see any blood. You just see, like, the imprint of the knife on the skin. Mm-hmm. And they also brought in a nude body double that, you know... Was... For the wider shots in case something slipped. Yeah, for the wider shots, but also someone that was comfortable with already showing their body so Janet wouldn't have to do that. Well, because she was, she was wearing, um, I believe it was like a moleskin, like, 
Um, um, like bodysuit kind of. Well, it wasn't like a bodysuit. Like basically moleskin, like pasties, I guess that that covered yeah, areas I, and like frost coated underwear, something like that. And you, honestly, you can't really tell. She is shown from the shoulders. The, the shoulders up. Yeah. Um, but it is funny when she's like dead and Norman's Norman's dragging her out of the mm. shower, uh, and it's like you can tell him like she's wearing underwear. Yeah. Like was she wearing underwear in the, the shower? That well, was that was one this? of the things where people are like, yeah, he pulls her out and she's wearing underwear, and I, I had to you know watch it. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like I never, <laughs> I never paid attention to that. It's more hitch. You're losing your touch, man. That mm, that is a immature mistake right there. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, it it's just a thing that you're so focused on Norman, how careful he's being about this, and the fact that he's not freaking out more than we would expect him to. Yeah, the that is a thing because this is the first moment where we get the a real look at how Norman and you know the mother and that whole thing operates. Also, some bad ADR. Oh my God, blood! Yeah, Ugh. and it's like what the hell? What is that line reading? But this is a, a interesting sequence where it's all shot in one. It basically like one long take. Yeah, it, like maybe two or three takes, but. It's done in a way where we never really see Marion's body. And it's so systematic of how Norman moves around and, and takes things away. And, like, the money's sitting, like, bundled up in the newspaper. Yeah. And then he throws it away. And it's like, that was the whole... That was everything. That was why she was doing it. That was what everybody's mm-hmm. looking for. And it's to him, it's like, this doesn't matter. I don't know what it is. I don't even care. It's just it's, a newspaper to it, me. It's evidence yeah, that it, you were here. And it's one of those things where it's like the money. He didn't care about the money. He killed Marion because you know, she... You know, Enticed she, him. She she got his motor running. And his mother was like, no, 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 no. Cool your jets, son. And it's different from the book where she entices him and, you know, Mother kills him because, you know, that's not allowed. But it's so much more graphic in the book. I mean, they don't go into, like, you know, full... And then, you know, each piercing of this, this, and that. It's just, he discovers the body because apparently in this where, you know, Norman blacks out and turns into Mother, Mm -hmm. Norman in the book likes his whiskey and blacks out and that's when Mother takes over. Mm, I see. So he, you know, finds Marion and... sorry mary in the book is not only stabbed she's uh decapitated yes and it's this thing where it's just a complete mess in the bathroom and he disposes of her in an old hamper in the house and he's talking about cleaning up the bathroom and well the easy part was lifting her body into the hamper but the rough part was having to drop her head in there and i'm just like my god i'm like um, I'm just sitting there picturing it. I'm like, oh my god, this it's is so wonky, I'm so like, weird. This is so weird. It also didn't help. I've seen this movie a hundred times. It doesn't scare me. Mm-hmm. I decided when I was reading the book, I'm gonna listen to Bernard Herrmann's score. While oh, horrible idea! Oh, I freaked myself out so bad I couldn't sleep that night. I was having such a hard time. I'm like, Norman's gonna come running in here with the knife and get me. I'm like. <laughs> I'm not afraid of Norman, but... Norman's not scary. The score is. The yeah. score is really creepy. And it's not like, oh man, it's just it's just disturbing sounds over and over. Like the Omen score or something like yeah. that. It's like, no, this is just... It's all it's strings. strings. And it's also hard and mm-hmm. angry. And it's like, this doesn't sound... This doesn't sound like, like music. It sounds like animals, like dying and it's so uh it's, it just doesn't feel right 
it kind of goes with the book because in the book where, you know, we open up on Norman and Norman's reading and in the book, he's always reading something and he's reading about, I think like ancient Inca civilization. And it's this thing where their warriors would fillet open an enemy's belly and basically stretch it out and use it like a drum and noise would come out through the throat. And I was just sitting there I'm like, what am I reading? We are not a uh, safe for work or children's podcast, by the way. We are definitely something where you should listen to if you are okay with disturbing imagery and uh, really weird shit. Yes, this is not suitable for work. This is not suitable for children. That too. But it was just like, wow, this is getting very, very disturbing. But then that kind of feeds in with how the score feels where it's not like Vertigo where... It's beautiful and dreamlike. This is like Jaws, where we're being alerted for the next kill, the it's, next attack. It's it's so it's so angry. Yeah, I think is the the key emotion I get from it. Um, but I I think you know we're we're like yeah, about an hour in, and I wanted to ask you this because this is something that I um have always thought about it, where people quantified this as the first um slasher, first American slasher, because mm-hmm. it's like this from Peeping Tom. They argue, but we'll quantify it as like the first american slasher do you qualify this film psycho 1960 direct by hitchcock as a certified slasher film yes why because there's slashing in it okay i mean <laughs> i i know it has like a, a knife killer in it but i mean like the tropes of the slasher genre does this fit into it because i've always felt like halloween that's like a very that's like slasher, that's yes. a slasher by the bone slasher villain, Scream, right? Scream, slasher. Scream, Friday Thirteenth, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw mm-hmm. Massacre, all those movies. This almost feels to me more like a, an Italian giallo film. Though, though I think um, you might know those as like you know um, black glove killer movies where mm-hmm. oh it's a mystery who who's the killer or whatever, and they're usually like kind of bad movies. Um, but they're, that, this feels more like that, and I guess they're both slashes, but there's, like, weird, subtle differences that don't qualify them as the exact same, because, like, Giallo films are, like, really pulpy, and a little bit hearkening to, like, very over-the-top, kind of trashier storytelling, and this is based off a pulpy, kind of, like, trashier novel, like, the, the source material you would qualify as kind of like a pulpy true crime book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, Norman isn't going out looking for victims and i'm gonna say that for the book and the movie he's not going out looking for victims like in you know traditional slasher movies Mm -hmm. or you know he appears a certain season you know it's this thing where he is disturbed Mm -hmm. but at the same time he will kill to protect mother yes and i think that this pattern will continue if more people pose a threat to mother and having a motel where you have customers and you constantly have people entering your life, you run the risk of, well, I've already killed two people. They might find out or someone else might come out looking, you know, and looking and asking questions. I might have to get rid of them to protect mother. So the bodies, you know, will just build, build, build. Is he, is Jason Voorhees the spiritual successor to... Um, Norman Bates even more so than like Michael Myers or or any others or slasher vic- killer 
Because I, I'm thinking about it, and it's like, oh, you know, killer with mommy issues. Well, that's Jason Voorhees. He doesn't go out to kill people. He he exists in a very sedentary life. Like, mm-hmm. Jason, Camp Crystal Lake. You don't want to get killed by Jason? Don't, don't go to Camp Crystal Lake. Don't want to get killed by Norman Bates? Don't go to the Bates Motel. Don't go to the Bates Motel. With Michael Myers, it's like, well, it's not like don't go to the Myers house. It's like, don't live in Haddonfield. Yeah. With Freddy Krueger, it's like, oh, don't go to Elm Street. No, just don't sleep. Yeah. You know, and it's like the other one is Leatherface, right? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't have the same mother complex. He has a more like his family is a very domineering force yeah. in his life. But granted, I don't even qualify Leatherface as the true villain of that. He's like the muscle of the family. Yeah. I it's it's very interesting how Psycho and Norman Bates even though this is like a very proto slasher film, at least to me, mm-hmm. it feels like well, some of the stuff that slasher films took over and really um, expanded ex- on. expanded on in the later decades. Mm-hmm. This is like the DNA of Psycho is in all these slasher yeah. villains, like all of them. the The only thing about it that has always like pulled me away is how I'm trying to find a good way to 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 explain it i'm kind of drawing a blank it's just for some reason this has always felt to me like way too of like a sterile experience Mm -hmm. as opposed to like most slasher films that i remember as being a lot more grittier yeah and kind of nastier like this feels like such like a clean slasher movie i'm like is this even a slasher movie yeah i mean for me it doesn't feel like just a slasher movie because it's so complex. Mm. The character of Norman Bates has so many complexities to him where it's, you know, he is a nice guy, but he's disturbed and it's, you know, you get on that bad side, you're dead. Is Norman a nice guy? I mean, when he's not, you know, infected by mother, he comes across as very charming and, you know, polite. And then it's just, you know, when mother kicks in because... He has an outside interest other than mother and the motel. You know, all hell breaks loose. Okay. And that's why it's, you know, I would qualify him as a slasher, but not in the traditional sense where he's doing this because I love doing this. Mm. He's doing it because I have to protect my family. When your family's really been dead for the past 10 years. She lives in your head. She's not physically here. Yeah. Even though her body is still physically she, she, here. She's hanging out up there, which is also a thing where how good is uh, Norman's ventriloquist skills? Oh, where the top notch. Marion can hear mother yelling at Norman from like 15 flights of stairs and two buildings over. Yeah. Like, how, how, how loud is he going? He's going really loud, and for being a sick woman, she could yell. And, you know, it's interesting. For being a dead woman, she's yelling from beyond the grave. For being a dead woman, she's got a lot to say. Strong broad right there. Very. But did you know that the voices of Mother was played by three women? Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Was it, like, a thing where each one of them did a different, like, um, different scene, and they were all put together? Or was it, like, all three of them record and they all got like kind of spliced together there were some scenes where they kind of like spliced the audio together to create her voice Mm -hmm. i don't remember which woman it was but one of them got to do the monologue in the end oh really yeah that was all her and i was kind of like that's cool that they brought in you know these different people to bring mother to life and then you have that epic 
uh, monologue in the end where he's just sitting there and, you know, I'm I'm going to play this up so well. I'm not going to misbehave. I'm going to make people think, wow, they, they really brought him in here for the wrong reasons. And it's just, you know, that's well, the... Look at her. Wouldn't even hurt a fly. And it's just, it's so perfect. It's Kino. Kino. Well, all right. Hour 20 in, final thoughts on Ugh. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I mean, I could keep going. I love this movie. We don't even talk about, we didn't even talk about the ending. What are you talking about? We just did the whole thing where it's like, oh, wouldn't even hurt a fly. And then they pull the car out of the swamp and then end credit. Yeah, but, you know, the whole reveal of Mother at the end, because, you know, we're led to think Mother's, you know, calling the shots. And how is this old woman getting the strength to go and butcher people? I I thought we talked about that. I mean, grant, granted, I mean, I feel context clues have given away that, yes, um, Norman is Mother. Yeah, Norman is Mother. I mean, we have, you know, one of the cooler kills in this movie with Arbogast. Yeah, yeah, he gets... He gets killed by getting stabbed and he's falling down those stairs in like a an amazing 1960 special effect of the of falling down the stairs. I and mean, that effect would go with vertigo just the feeling and seeing him fall backwards mm-hmm. and going into, you know, the falling of down the stairs. It's so it's so weird. It makes me dizzy watching movie. it. Yeah, well, yeah, because the background perspective is is all wrong for how his body is. And mm-hmm. You're like, well, how is he falling down the stairs like that? And it's it's really unnatural and strange. And, and it, I mean, the, granted, the whole thing about that sequence is, uh, what is it? I think people have been saying that Hitchcock didn't direct it because he was sick, and some and like his wife did it or his like um, AD did it or whatnot. And that's yeah. like the only scene in the movie that he actually didn't touch himself i think so i don't know if that's 100 percent factual or if that's rumor but yeah I, I looked into how that was filmed and the the whole scene of him flying down the stairs backwards is him sitting in a chair with his arms out and basically you know acting the falling and the rest of it is the the camera was mounted on tracks on the ceiling to kind of go with that motion of going down the stairs so they compiled the two scenes, so you feel like... You're falling. You're falling backwards down the stairs. And I mean, you know, it's one thing to to be slashed, but he gets slashed across the face. Yeah, and you don't even... You don't see the knife actually touch him in any way. It's another one of those implied things where it's like, oh my god, he stabbed him. Like, you didn't really see it. Mm-hmm. See it, like, like, touch him or anything like that. And I think that's... all. This is also a good use of Hitchcock building up suspense and building up tension because Abergast approaches the house and it's very slow and he gets once he gets into the house then it's like oh when's mother gonna show up and you have that overhead shot and then it's like boom surprise mother comes out of the room and attacks him and I love how every time we see somebody approaching the house it's always shot in like a different way Mm -hmm. and it's only Lila that we approach when she approaches the house it's shot in a very it's shot a very particular way that's different than when we've seen um, Abergast approach the house, yeah. the times he's done it. Uh, the times where we see Norman approach the house. It's a very in- interesting thing that he does. Yeah, and the, it was something weird I was watching during the, the, the making of the documentary about the movie, where they said that the house was furnished. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, now that we've seen it, it's just the bones of the house. If you, like, look into Oh, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Well, the, I think the original house burned down, and what we have is, like, half no. a reconstruction? No, we have, the house is the original house. Um, I know that the sets that they filmed inside, like, the inside of the motel and inside of the house was filmed in the soundstage where they filmed Lon Chaney's The Phantom of the Opera. Mm. That's where that was filmed. But apparently... They had, like, that first, like, the living room and the stairs furnished. So when they do those transition scenes of the people walking into the house, that's how it looked. Mm, So it was this interesting thing where I guess at one point in time, it was, it looked like a house if you walked into it. Well, it it had a room and a staircase that looked right. Yeah, and um, the Bates Motel that we have now at Universal, that's actually from Vince Vaughn's psycho from 96 98 98 okay so that well that's what again we'll we'll re we'll reclarify um because we're talking about the um psycho house that's shot in the movie that's sitting in the universal backlot right yes okay because i know the actual hotel thing like i said there that's not original that's like a reconstruction right because that that was gone it was falling apart the yeah. original one it fell apart and i think they they tore it down and then when they made the remake they built it back up, and they built it strong enough to, so that it could stay for the tram tour that goes through there. Yeah. But the house is the original house that's been shot in all the franchise films except for the fourth film. Okay. Now, because I had always heard that over and over mm-hmm. again. It's like, oh no, this is the real one from mm-hmm. Hitchcock's 1960, whatever. But the I've always thought that it got, like, burned down, or it was, like, partially reconstructed, because I always thought, like, some of it was, like, falling apart, and they, like, rebuild it so many times, so it's, like, only, like, the bottom half is still, like, the real house, but the top half had to be rebuilt. Yeah, that I'm not sure. I mean, I'm probably, probably certain, you know, there's been, of course, maintenance on it to make sure that... It doesn't collapse under its own weight. Exactly, because it's been around since the 50s, so you want to make sure that this house is, you know, still structurally sound. But that is the original house. It's just the motel that's not you know, real. That's not real. Um, well, I guess none of it is real. But that's that's the one that I was like, yeah, yeah, we made it because the other one was kind of falling apart. Yeah. So you know, it, it's kind of a cool thing that the house that you know we've come to fear still lives, and we've gotten to walk up to it. We've both touched the step. Yeah. And are you actually afraid of this movie? No. Okay, because I'm I've never been afraid of sci- I've been I've been like creeped out by it. I've, no, oh, I've really been creeped out by it. No, it's just you know, ooh, the house up on the hill, you know, the the Bates house, you know, Mrs. Bates, and oh my God, you know, they they died by suicide, and it's just no, it's this thing where yeah, it's supposed to be the the big spooky house up on the hill behind the motel, and you know, we got to see it what like five years ago on the big screen. Uh, in um yeah yeah they did a showing at the fox theater up in fullerton and that's when we saw it um and we saw it on the big screen and it's like oh yeah this is really cool um but the fact that people were reacting to it you know people screamed when there was the reveal of mrs bates and the fruit cellar and i was like wow it's still getting you know general fear from people so many years later well i think it just works because the movies are just a good movie yeah and it also helps because i think we finally hit a time where people don't know exactly everything from the movie through just cultural osmosis yeah 
So it's like you can still be surprised by it? Because, I mean, you know, just that that headshot of Marion screaming in the shower. That's so iconic. It's on t-shirts. It's on posters. It's on your book of 1001 movies to watch. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like, I I really do enjoy the movie. I love this movie. Uh, The characters, the plot, the locations. Uh, I just love it all. And the music. Yeah. Two thumbs up? Two big thumbs up, strong thumbs up. If you haven't seen this movie, watch this movie. It's so very important to film history. Yes, uh, give it a watch. I'm pretty sure you can find this on YouTube for free at this point. Uh, I don't think so. I usually have a hard time finding it to stream. Mm-hmm. Usually it's on Peacock for, like, October. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's out there. You know, go to a used bookstore. They'll probably have, you know, a couple copies of Psycho on DVD. They might even have the book. They might have the book, yeah. Um, but uh, with that, what are we watching next week? Next week, we're going back to uh, more Dean impressions of Jimmy Stewart, because we're going to be watching Rear Window. Yeah. Is it true, Clarence? We're, we're going back to Rear Window? I mean, funny oh. you say that, because that's actually Christmas week. Oh shit! I'm gonna be excited. I'm I'm gonna rewatch. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. I'm gonna have a You're gonna Jimmy, cry. I'm gonna have a whole Jimmy Stewart week <laughs> for Rear Window. I love that movie. Um, but where where can they go to listen to that? Well, if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. We release video versions of this podcast in my beautiful 1080p slideshow editions state of the art state of the art lo-fi aesthetic and uh like comment subscribe let us know that we're doing a horrible job but you support us anyway but if you wanted to talk to us on social media where can they go well you can find us on instagram at the film club podcast where we post daily stories trivia upcoming episodes and our random adventures and with that we all go a little mad sometimes and we'll see you next week at the film club everybody have a wonderful week good evening she did the thing <laughs>